Hi, I'm Dr. Eric Claville, and thank you for joining us for this episode of the Claville Report, Law, Policy, and Politics. Today, I want to talk about excessive force. You know, this past week recently, we've heard the verdict from the George Floyd case where the state of Minnesota prosecuted former officer, now convicted felon, Derek Chauvin, for the murder of George Floyd. It's a case that really changed what I believe is the trajectory of how we deal with community, policing, and more specifically, black and brown people. I'm more optimistic than I was in the past, but I'm still cautiously optimistic. Why is that? Why is that? You would think that the videotape that we saw or the or the Facebook stream of former officer, now convicted felon, Derek Chauvin, neck, knee on the neck of George Floyd would be something that we should never have seen. Would, it would be something that you think would shock the conscience of every single human being on this earth. But we saw throughout this entire ordeal, we saw throughout the trial, throughout the buildup of the trial, we're seeing it now, even after the verdict, that some people believe that a former officer, now convicted felon Derek Chauvin, was just doing his job. Some people believe that the police have to use this type of force, more specifically, on African-Americans and brown people. Because if you listen to the evidence that came out in the trial and the audio of Derek Chauvin speaking to the elderly African-American gentleman on the sidewalk, he said, you kill that man. And the former officer now convicted felon Derek Chauvin turned to him and said, he may have been on something. You got to handle him like that. I had to handle, handle him like that because he may have been on something. There was also, you know, a defense that there was super strength. He had super strength because he may have been on drugs. We heard this in the Michael Brown case in, in Ferguson, Missouri, about six, seven years ago. It's this miseducation about African-Americans, more specifically black men and society that black men are somehow more dangerous. Black men are somehow uh, have to be dominated more so with these harsh and excessive force tactics than any uh, anyone else. You know, <laughs> I had I had to pause because, you know, this subject is very touchy for me. Is it's a subject that, of course, we're analyzing it from a policy and and law aspect and historical aspect. But at the same time, I'm an African American. I'm a black man. I, I grew up around black men all my life. I have black sons, and to be thought of and treated in this manner in a way is nothing less than dehumanizing. In a way, it's nothing less than cruel and unusual punishment. In a way, it's nothing less than outright evil. But what we want to do here, we want to try to show the world, show you, the listener, so you can go out and change the world, that this is wrong, that this is not the way that we should approach policing, this is not the way we should approach citizens of our country. This is not the way we should approach how we deal 
with each other. Now, of course, I'm an advocate for the police. I'm an advocate for safe communities. I'm an advocate for good schools and safe schools. I'm an advocate for building families. I'm an advocate for obtaining opportunities. But I'm also an advocate for humanity, an advocate for fairness, equity, and equality, and also inclusiveness. So that simply means that we have to take a collective pause, sit back, look at the history, be honest about it, and say, where do we go from here? Is this what we want to be? Is this how we want to define ourselves as a country, as a nation, as a people in this day and time? What will history do when they look back at us and say? So that's the disposition that I want to take, the direction I want to go with this topic, because this is not the first time we're going to deal with it, and this is not the well last time that we're going to deal with it. But I want to go into historical context. I want us to take a look at the history, recent history, of excessive force in African Americans as it relates to policing. I want you to take a look at this historical video. This complication, I mean, this compilation Mashable, uh, from Mashable and Box Media. Please. It has been incredibly difficult to, to prosecute a police officer successfully. I'm here because I'm sick and tired of seeing black men and women be killed and nothing be done about it. Los Angeles, 1991. Rodney King, a 25-year-old black man, refuses to pull over after he's flagged for speeding. After a high-speed chase, four police officers surround him, severely beaten. Security footage sparks mass public outrage. Despite that, all four officers are acquitted of excessive force charges and residents riot in South Central LA, causing millions of dollars in damage, thousands of injuries, and 53 deaths. We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. Jonathan Farrell was unarmed when he died, just a month shy of his 25th birthday. Now that officer, Randall Carrick, is charged with voluntary manslaughter. A mistrial was declared in the case of a white police officer who shot and killed an unarmed black man. There were protests outside the court after the mistrial was announced Friday. Death of Eric Garner of a heart attack on Thursday. The father of six can be heard on the tape saying repeatedly. I can't be prosecution. That's what this is all about. Many people simply cannot understand why the grand jury did not indict when they could actually see video of what went down between that New York police officer and Eric Garner. Michael Brown, an unarmed 18-year-old, was shot and killed during a struggle with a Ferguson police officer. Sir Darren Wilson will not be indicted. It's the feeling among many of these people that black lives don't matter. Not one reason that this grand jury find to indict him. Yes. How can we be promised that this injustice will happen again to another black kid? In another state right. tomorrow. How can we assure our kids that they're safe out on the street with your officers? That's my That's question. what I want to know. I have a black child. Chicago police officer Jason Van Dyke shot and killed 17-year-old Laquan McDonald. For the first time in 35 years, a Chicago police officer is charged with first-degree murder. Ah! Oh, 
that officer found guilty of second degree murder. Very unusual, very important. It just goes to show you how serious that I am about my life and all these other lives that are out here that are scared of the police. An officer shot and killed 12-year-old Tamir Rice on Sunday. Tamir Rice was playing with a pellet gun when officers arrived. And one of them opened fire within two seconds. Grand jury decided not to indict the two officers who shot and killed 12-year-old Tamir Rice. Cleveland's prosecutor calls it a tragedy, but not a crime. It doesn't even warrant a trial. That in my mind is unacceptable. Thing of the death of Freddie Gray. All lives matter, but you got to think about who dying out here. Prosecutors in Baltimore dropped all remaining charges against three police officers in the Freddie Gray case. I just ask people to consider if Trayvon Martin was of age and armed, could he have stood his ground on that sidewalk? A woman was shot and killed in her apartment. George Floyd died in police custody after an officer pressed his knee into Floyd's neck. He said, I can't breathe. Eerily similar to what we heard in 2014 with Eric Garner. I filed an amended complaint that charges former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin with murder in the second degree. George Floyd, whose killing by U.S. police triggered anti-racism protests right around the world. Weeks of global protests and international support and impact uh, around the world. Protesters marched once again in cities worldwide, demanding police departments change their tactics. As you can see from the compilation from Vox Media and also Mashable, which pull clips from various news outlets and various times throughout our very recent history. You see that this use of excessive force is just not a recent thing. You can see that this use of trying to hold bad actors in police departments accountable have failed. Again, this is just not something that's happening, but something that has been happening. But when the video started, let's just think about it. During the time of the civil rights movement, Dr. King spoke, he said, that we simply cannot go forward continuing to experience these types of unimaginable harms and hurts and dehumanizing methods upon Black people. Fast forward, 1991, from King to King, Dr. Martin Luther King to Rodney King. The video, I thought, wow, finally, there's video evidence that shows that these things are really happening. And obviously, videos don't lie, right? There were four officers that pulled over the scene initially, and they started to beat him. They hit him 40 times with a billy club, kicked him in the face, in the back, all over his body. Is that policing? Is that trying to detain someone who's uncooperative? And the police departments themselves were not even going to do anything unless 
until these charges were actually brought. Initially, this was as things would go, what we call status quo, just a regular day at the office, so to speak. But the video, everyone thought for sure, this is it. Finally, evidence that shows these things really do happen to us. But all four officers were acquitted. Set off massive protests, massive anger and frustration. And again, when we talk about uh, civil, I call it civil unrest, news outlets call it riots. But when we look at these things, it's because of anger and frustration that what we're trying to do is not working, that the system doesn't work for us. Fast forward, once again, we see another video. Eric Garner. Eric Garner in New York. The police were called on him because he was selling loose cigarettes on the street, obviously outside of a convenience store. So the store didn't want the competition. And six officers come on the scene. And he says, you guys are messing with me again. And what ends up happening, he gets put in a chokehold. And that chokehold, he said, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. They take him to the ground. He said, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And he has a heart attack and he dies. On the scene. Clearly, the video speaks for itself, right? Clearly, it shows that these tactics that were being used were causing this man to lose his very life. He lost his life trying to basically sell loose cigarettes on the street. Fast forward, we have Michael Brown. Michael Brown, who's in the, walking in the middle of the street, the officer comes up, of course, tells him to get out of the street. And for some reason, the officer gets into it with, the, with Michael Brown, his friend. And, quote, unquote, a struggle ensues. We only have the word of the officer as to how things went down and the witness, the surviving witness. And Michael Brown is shot dead and left in the street like an animal, like roadkill. They don't cover him up. They don't do anything. They just keep people away. He's in the street dead, lifeless. No life-saving measures taken. Dead, lying. Then you fast forward. Trayvon Martin. Trayvon Martin, of course, a young teenager who lived in the neighborhood where his father lived. Parents were separated, so he stayed there some uh, half the time in his mother's house half the time. So he was in, quote-unquote, his neighborhood. But the neighborhood watch head said he looked suspicious. He called 911. And instead of staying in the vehicle like they told him to, like the 911 operator told him to, he gave his intent when he got out of the car. He said, these people always get away get away all the time. Go back and listen to it. To me, that was clear evidence of his intent and what he claimed to do. So he basically stalked, tracked down a private citizen that had no weapon, that wasn't threatening anyone, all because he, quote unquote, looked suspicious. And a struggle ensues, and he kills him, and he gets off. Fast forward, we see a young man in North Carolina, actually a couple that we saw in the video itself, that were killed because 
persons thought he had, he was armed, he was dangerous, he looked dangerous. So they, instead of instead of waiting or calling the police, if that's the case, that man car broke down, they killed him. Fast forward, again, Tamir Rice, Chicago. Tamir Rice is a little boy, not even in high school. Officer said, someone said he has a gun. Of course, it was a toy, toy gun. And he's at the park playing like all kids do. My kids play with Nerf guns. And after all these incidents, we don't allow them to, we, we, we caution them not to go out in public with those things. Because even though it's, they're huge, they're fluorescent, they're, you know, lime green, you know, almost uh, fluorescent orange and white all over, someone still may mistake it for an actual gun, even though no gun looks like that. But you have to be careful. And then Tamir Rice, he's playing with it. And the officer says he got out of the car. He threatened him. You know, Tamir Rice threatened him. And he asked him to put it down. He then, when the video actually showed that he pulled up on the scene, high speed, and shot out of the other side of the window, killing a little boy, Tamir Rice. I can go on and on and on. And then all the way up to George Floyd. But it almost becomes exhausting. But the issue becomes... Why was this type of deadly force used on African-Americans when we don't see the same with white Americans? Case in point, Timothy McVeigh, still the most, he goes down as the most notorious domestic terrorist in the U.S. history. White American, he drove a truck with a fertilizer, 1,000-pound fertilizer van underneath the federal building. He detonated it and it basically blew half of the building down of a federal building in Oklahoma. One of the worst things about that is that there was a daycare on the bottom floor. I still get choked up when I think about that or even say that because those children were innocent. He was taken without incident and he killed, he actually committed treason attacked our the homeland, the country. Dylan Roof, another domestic terrorist, who, in his manifesto, basically we know that he hated African Americans uh, and others. He, we knew through his manifesto that he was a follower of uh, Nazism and the Confederacy and white supremacy. And he walked into a church, loaded, with two nine-millimeter guns, with extra clips. He sat through Bible study, AME, Mother Emanuel Church, South Carolina. The history of that church is tremendous. I urge you to go back and listen to the PBS special, The Black Church. This is our story. This is our song. It's a great, great piece about, portion of that about Mother Emanuel and the history of that church and the people. He walked into that church, he sat there to Bible study, and he unloaded all those people and killed all of them. The pastor, the elderly sisters and brothers and the children that were in there. We knew he had guns. 911 was called. They know shots were being fired. They heard him. But he was taken without incident. As a matter of fact, he said he was hungry after he killed all those people in cold blood and murder. Nothing but the devil got into him to do that. You can't tell me anything different. 
But guess what they did? <laughs> they took the domestic terrorists to Burger King to get him a Whopper. Is this the way we treat white felons that commit atrocities against black people and we treat black people who haven't committed any crimes like animals. So we treat others with dignity, but treat blacks as less. The evidence is there. Again, as I say all the time, check the record, don't believe the rhetoric. So these excessive tactics, excessive force, excessive actions, excessive way of thinking about African-Americans. It's just, is this justified? Is it, was there a reason for this? Obviously, if it is, we haven't heard it. I think about Breonna Taylor, how they burst into this person's home. <laughs> no knock warrant. And they just start shooting and kill this woman in her own home. Think about it. Think about you sleeping in your home, in your bed. And maybe you had a good night. Maybe your day was good. And it was just a great day. And all of a sudden you hear this bang at the door. And you hear this action coming in. And this, you're startled. You're scared. And all of a sudden gunshot fire. You don't know what to do. You're frantic. And you get shot and killed in your own bed. She died in her own bed. And the person they were looking for, they had found him several hours before that no-knock warrant, which caused her life to be lost, taken. Again, where does this come from? Again, why the excessive tactics against African-Americans and not against our fellow white citizens? I think it goes all the way back to the beginning of what we call the modern day police force. We know that August Volker is the father of criminal justice, former police chief uh, from New Orleans, Louisiana, former police chief at Berkeley uh, in California. And we know that he actually wrote a book and tried and tested some, some te techniques in which he found that individuals who are poor, individuals who don't have access and opportunity, individuals who are more black and brown, you can actually use more aggressive tactics on them as opposed to those who are white, those who are wealthier, those who are more uh, have access uh, to the system. So that's why when you take a look at Law & Order, you know, one of the shows that I look at, I, I watch all the time, love all of them, you see that when someone is, they go to the neighborhood, whether it be the African-American neighborhood, the Puerto Rican neighborhood, anything other than white, the tactics that they use, they rough up the, the people that are there to talk to them a certain way. But when they try to go down on Fifth Avenue, Manhattan, or other areas, the chief tells them, all right, make sure all your I's and dotters are T's across on this one. I don't want to get a call from, you know, downtown. In other words, you can't rough them up the same way because there is a system that they have access to that can immediately cause more harm for you than you could cause for them. Happens all the time. So I believe it's 
not just bad apples. I believe it's a rotten tree that produces some good apples, but causes others to rot. I believe if we go back a little further in history, we look at police departments and police, local police departments were pretty much evolved out of what's called slave catchers. Slave catchers were employed by plantation owners, and these are individuals who were white, those they weren't wealthy, but they were just blue-collar workers, but believed that they had power, which they were given a power, to catch runaway slaves and to treat them in a way that was demeaning, dehumanizing in any way that they saw fit in order to keep them under subjection. The slave catchers were part of some of the most brutal and dehumanizing actions against African-Americans at the time, classified as chattel, property, slaves, not indentured servants. These people had no rights whatsoever. But they worked and they built this country with their blood, sweat, tears, strength, ingenuity, and their lives. So as a side note, when someone says, this country doesn't belong to you, uh-uh, can't be further from the truth. This is our country just as much as this anyone else. Matter of fact, as African-Americans, we built it. Other non-whites, they gave their ingenuity in other areas to help also build this country. From the Asian-Americans that helped to build the railroads, Transcontinental Railroad, to uh, the others who have come to this country and worked to build. Immigrants from Ellis Island, others who also came from South America, Central America, and Mexico to help build this country. We all pitched in. We all helped to build it. And to our Native American brothers and sisters, this is their land. This is our land. We all have played a part. So if we played a part in building this country, we have to play a part in building and correcting that which we see is wrong. Local police departments are just that. They're local. Police departments themselves are probably the most um, local governmental entities that we have and actors because they're, they're departments that are made up and given ultimate control and authority in order to execute and keep execute the law and keep law, to patrol, to protect, to serve. That means when they go out, they only, all citizens, they're there to protect them all, to serve them all. In their, in their eyes, theoretically, no one is above the law, no one is below the law, beneath it. But in practice, we know that's very different. Some may say, well, that's what the courts are for, but there are issues there as well. But local police departments, are made up of local citizens that live in those areas, whose children go to the same schools your children go to, whom you go to the same grocery store as, as they go to the same grocery stores as you go to, the same barber and, and cosmetology shop as anyone else. In other words, they live in the community. They're there to protect the community. They're there to ensure that it flourishes. So if the solution can start anywhere, it has to start locally. In other words, there has to be a re-education about the miseducation of Black people and Brown people in those communities. And a miseducation, a re-education 
about the miseducation of the status of, of non-Blacks and brown people or white people in those communities. Then there's got to be a discussion about collective and individual responsibility and respect. If the officers, the guardians of our communities, of our cities, of our states, of our country do not respect the citizens that live in all of them, then how can you expect the citizens to respect the system that's there to protect them? Some may say it's a, it's a system that we've had forever and we should just keep it and ensure that good actors will do good things. Well, I give you Adrian Schoolcraft, who was a good officer in New York, second generation officer, who saw the abuse from the top down. And for 18 plus months, he recorded these incidents and these commands that were given to them to execute the law unfairly, unjustly, under the stop and frisk, the former stop and frisk policy in New York. Well, he did the right thing. And the system came down on him. What we saw in the George Floyd trial, well, the, the trial for justice for George Floyd against state versus Chauvin. We saw finally, not just one, not just two, but all of the heads of the police system testifying the truth that what former officer, now convicted felon, Derek Chauvin did to George Floyd was neither policy, was neither ethical, but it was flat out wrong and not part of their training. That's the type of support that the community needs when bad actors do bad things. Just like the justice system is there to speak against private citizens who commit bad things as bad actors. In other words, equity, equality, inclusiveness, and justice under the law. That's what we aim for. That's what we strive for. And that's what we'll continue to work for. So this is, again, the first part of excessive force on this edition of the Clavier Report, Law, Policy, and Politics. Join us next time as we continue to explore not just the issues and the history, but next we'll explore the solutions and examples that we've seen across our country. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time.